This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode with Simone Campbell titled Hunger for Hope, Contemplation and Political Action. It was recorded in June 2023 at the 18th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society. Well, I am just really excited to be here and to have a chance to talk about the impact of a contemplative life. And I've spent this year kind of dabbling occasionally in Merton. It wasn't a big reading of mine. When I was a young sister, I I did, you know, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander and a bunch of the more activist kinds of things that he wrote. But I I have not been, uh, I had not done a deep dive. Well, I still haven't done a deep dive, but swimming in the shallow end of uh, Merton, I, I was reading the book Silent Lamp, the biography. Some of you may know it. It's a, it's a wonderful reflection of the history of his life, which helped me understand some of his writing. But what I realized was, as the author of Silent Lamp noted, is he really couldn't talk about the details of his contemplative practice. He talked about the results, what happened, his insights, but not the the way. He talked about kind of a um, the vision of what he he saw, the consequences, not visions like you know visions, visions, but the consequences, the impact. So I, I wanted to start this by kind of a asking this brave question, how many of you have some quality of a contemplative practice? Could I, you could just raise your hands. Oh, thanks be to God. Okay. Okay. Because most of this talk is a result of my own contemplative practice. So may or may not make a lot of sense if people don't know what it means, that place of ambiguity, uncertainty, and was that really prayer? What did happen? So if you can share that uh, puzzlement with me at times, it may make more sense. But I wanted to start with a story that I heard from a woman, Scylla Elworthy, who I I love saying this. I met in Rome, actually. Um, the Voices of Faith is an organization of women, or international organization of women trying to make an impact in the Vatican, trying to change the role of women in the Vatican, and actually has had uh, has advocated for more positions for women in uh, jobs that don't need to be filled by clerics, and has had an impact. So, uh, I was there for one of their conferences. I was a speaker, and the one of the other speakers was from England, and Scylla had been a on the team of the uh, nuclear. The negotiators of the nuclear uh, proliferation treaties. And uh, she, when the sessions were in England, she decided that they needed some extra help. Now, she's a Quaker. So she got her Quakers together, her, those who were in this meditation group with her, and they were meditating in the room below where the dialogue the negotiations were taking place and after a day i believe it went on for three days and on the second day the russians 
uh, one of the Russian representatives says, what is happening? What is going on? And, you know, they kind of looked at each other. What do you mean? What is going on? There is something happening. And she was like, oh, dear. So she uh, said, well, there's some people that are meditating for us downstairs. I don't believe it. And so she took the Russian delegation down to meet the meditators. The folks down who were doing silent meditation in their own contemplative way below the, the conference room. And the Russian guy walks in and says, what are you doing? And he was like, meditating? <laughs> but what that was, and then he shook his head. He just couldn't, couldn't take it in. He goes back upstairs. It was nothing. It was nothing. But he obviously had been impacted by it. And what I think I have learned in my own practice is that the contemplative has impacts that we rarely, that occasionally we can recognize, and sometimes we even see in the moment. But the value of opening ourselves up to the reality bigger than ourselves is desperately needed in our world today. And that in a time of great division, great anger, great hostility, I believe we have a responsibility to our world to be men and women, children of a contemplative practice, of a reflection practice, of willingness to open beyond ourselves and take in the other, to be people of compassion. So I take Scylla's experience with the Russian guy who didn't quite believe it as being evidence of an impact that we can have in ways that we don't even know. Because we know in our world today, you probably picked up on this, there's a fair amount of anger, suspicion, fear, division. Um, it's not a pretty picture. I heard yesterday, or day before yesterday, about um, a horrible circumstance in El Paso where a woman was riding in an Uber car in El Paso, sees a sign, you know, El Paso's right on the Mexican border, so there's you know, a lot of signs pointing to Mexico and, and vice versa on the other side, um, in Juarez sees a sign that says Mexico with an arrow that seemed to be in the direction they were going, becomes afraid that she is being kidnapped by the Uber driver. She takes out her gun and shoots him and kills him in order to protect herself. That is the level of fear can you imagine? Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti, I love saying that, it's so much fun. It's sort of like ice cream, but it's good. Um, says, solidarity 
means so much more than engaging in sporadic acts of generosity. It means thinking and acting in terms of community. It means that the lives of all are prior to the appropriation of goods by a few. Let me say it again. It means that the lives of all are prior to the appropriation of goods by the few. It is this solidarity that I believe, in my experience, is a fruit of a contemplative practice. Because, at least in my experience, it is the letting down of my boundaries, my walls, my protections, to be open to those who I may not ordinarily let in. (laughs) Now, ordinarily, I would let in that Uber driver, or I would let in a person living in economic struggles or a victim of domestic violence, I'll let those people in. But it also means letting in the woman who had the gun with some quality of compassion. It also means letting in these legislature legislators that are, in my humble opinion, nuttier than fruitcakes, and trying to find a way to bring compassion to even them. It reminds me, uh, I have all these odd stories, but it reminds me after the, some of you know about our nuns on the bus, and after the first bus trip, which was all about going after Paul Ryan's budget, that it failed a basic moral test, (laughs) which half the fun was saying that was because the bishop's office had said that's what had happened. So I was standing with our bishops. It was wonderful. But they had issued that press release on a Friday afternoon, hoping nobody noticed, but we noticed. So we handed it out at every possible moment. But the, the, in the bus trip, uh, Paul Ryan's office reached out and said he'd like to meet with sister. Well, I didn't trust him. I thought he was going to, so I never talked about it on the trip. We get back and staff says, all right, he'll meet with sister on July, July something, I forget, and um, come alone at noon. Don't bring the press. And it was like it was going to be the shootout at the OK Corral or something, you know. So my my contemplative practice had brought me to this um, realization of the challenge of radical acceptance, radical acceptance of even those I wanted to vote off the island, radical acceptance of Paul Ryan, that I needed to bring a compassionate heart to him. And so (laughs) it's high noon and we have our meeting and he's trying to impress me with his knowledge of the budget and I was just pointing out a few little details and um, bringing up stories because that, that's the counter. He's got all this analytical data. But what about Jimmy and his family who we met in, um, oh, shoot, in Milwaukee at the dining room? Oh, now I, I blocked on the name. But anyway, it was the dining room. He knew it was free, free meal. Jimmy and his wife and two kids. And 
And I was telling him about how they had to go to the dining room every night for dinner so his teenager, 14-year-old, and the seven-year-old would get enough to eat. And uh, so I was saying, your your policy on you know food stamps, the supplemental nutrition assistance program is really a problem because they're going to be adversely impacted. And he says to me, well, they're not the targets of my program. And I go, no, but they're going to be your victims. There's got to be a better way. As opposed to, you know, that more adversarial approach. Then he shifts the conversation and he said, well, you know, I, I keep my family in Janesville as if they were in a box, but he keeps his family in Janesville and he sleeps on a cot in his office. This was supposed to be credit to him. And I said, oh, holding compassion. Is that good for you or your family? How do you ever get a break? It was so interesting. He could not deal with the compassion. And I realized how defended you have to be in those positions to not be able to respond with that human, the human connection. And how important it is that some of us constituents connect with that human spiritual care for the person beyond the policy. Didn't change my advocacy with him. But do you know what happened? A couple of, oh, it was about a year later, I was testifying. I was the Democratic witness, one Democratic witness, three Republican witnesses. It was so much fun. And uh, anyway, so, you know, Marsha Blackburn, anybody from Tennessee? Anybody know? Okay. So she's in the Senate now. It's a little shocking, but um, she, she was really upset with the sister because the sister had been censured by the Vatican, so they couldn't believe a thing I was saying. <laughs> but here's the beauty. Here's compassion paying, paying off if you, if you need a payoff for compassion. Paul Ryan sitting up in the, the chairs raised uh, really high in the budget um, hearing room. So he's up three levels and, and he leans back and he says, oh no, sisters well within the teaching of our faith. We have a large tent. You can believe what she says. We had the Republican chair validating the Democratic witness. But I do believe, I do believe it was because of storytelling, but it was also because of compassion. And how do we as practitioners of a contemplative practice that some days just feels like crazy? I mean, that's distraction. How many more minutes do I have? That challenge gives a willingness to walk in other ways, to enter in new ways into relationship that's critically important. And it's that solidarity that leads us to see some new ideas, new ways of moving forward. And I believe our world is hungry for a new way forward. And we have a responsibility. This practice is not for ourselves. 
is for the sake of the entire body, the entire earth, the entire element of creation. It's way bigger than any one of us. It's weird, but it's way bigger than any one of us. So I wanted to tell you the story about how I discovered that it's way bigger than any one of us. In 2002, most of us are old enough to remember that, or maybe we're too old so we don't remember it, um, that um, I got an invitation in, um, I forget how all it went. It was at the end of September, I got an invitation to go in December to Iraq. And in 2002, it was before the invasion. It was while they were still looking for weapons of mass destruction and all this. And the goal of it was to see what was happening in Iraq, to go on a peace delegation. And I had like four days to decide if I could go. And so I talked to my board chair and I was doing state policy in California at the time and Iraq was not on the California policy agenda. So I thought I was going to maybe get out of it because it made me nervous. And, and John says to me, you've got to go. Oh oh dear. Oh, that's unfortunate. Okay. And then um, I talked to my community. I don't know. They were a little nervous, but it seemed like a good idea. And then I, I went to a woman that I was seeing for spiritual direction and I told her about it. And she said to me, well, Simone, listening to you, you know, that's that invitation seems to be the fruit of your contemplative practice. Oh, oh dear. Can I give it back? But the fruit of my contemplative practice had led me to know profoundly that all of creation is one body, that we are all connected, and none of us are separate. And that the if the body has a need, and I have an, a possibility of responding, who am I to say no? Now, that's exactly what got me here because David asked me, would I come? And so who am I to say no if I can do it? And I think that's that openness that we're led to, to know that we are all connected. And it was Merton's awareness of that that led him to much of his um, social justice engagement because it was not separate. It was not other. We are one. So after that, my prayer led me, and then we had this amazing experience in, in Iraq, and it was a fabulous, and invite me back, and I'll tell you that story sometime. But it was learning that the fruit of the contemplative life leads us sometimes to places we'd rather not go, only to be gifted beyond belief with a richness. And it led me to this prayer that, what part of the body am I? What is my role in the body? And I would urge you to think about what part of the body are you? Because I've had people tell me, oh, you know, Simone, you, you do these amazing things. You're so public. You're so this. You're so that. Well, yeah, that's my part of the body. But you've got your part. But we all need to recognize what part we are. See, that, that's how I came to know that my part in the body, 
I'm stomach acid in the body of Christ. My job, my job is to stir up energy, to, you know, metabolize food, give off gas occasionally, but be engaged. But I need you. I need others to take that energy and do something with it. I need to be part of this bigger body because it is that intersection, that back and forth. You know, stomach acid in too much quantity, I mean, that's that's illness. There's a problem. There's medicines for that. But we can't live without it. But that's why I need you to have your parts. And so I urge you to think about what is your part in this one body? What do you do? Where are you called? How do you respond to the needs of our time? How are you present in solidarity? Which means much more than engaging in sporadic acts of generosity. It means thinking and acting in terms of community. What do you do? And I'm sure you all have answers, but you may not have asked yourself that question. So I, because of being stomach acid, I got, it's part of the reason I got the Presidential Medal of Freedom is because I'm stomach acid. But anyway, that was kind of cool. But the I got invited on a delegation to Panama. And I just got back last night. And I wanted to share with you some of what we saw because I am keenly aware that this one body desperately needs to shift that approach of um, focus on security to a focus on community to a focus that opens ourselves up to the broader reality of the world. Now, praise God, I see some heads nodding. Thank you so much. thought, oh, no, they're going to think I'm nuts. Um, but what I saw is the consequence of our capitalist system is that it requires two things. It requires the free movement of capital, and we have thousands of treaties for that. And it requires the free movement of labor. But what we don't have is the free movement of labor because it's all defined in terms of fear, security, risk, threat. And we have people in devastated conditions who are moving because they have hope. They have hope, so they move. Some of you may have heard about the Darien jungle, the Darien Gap. Any of you hear about the Darien Gap? Okay, a few. Okay, so I'll set the picture. Panama. Panama's weird. I, the first day I was there, I got there Sunday. Sunday night, the sun's setting. I could have sworn the sun was setting in the east because Panama runs not north-south like you would think it would. It runs east-west. And they've got land and weird places. I mean, it's just so blessedly confusing. But anyway, apart from that, Panama is this narrow uh, country. They call it themselves a choke point. And for thousands of years, millennium, 
the Darien jungle had protected Panama from the Colombians. Originally, Panama was part of Colombia until the folks wanted to build the canal. And then they forced a coup to get Panama away so that we could own the canal. But uh, apart from that, the Panamanians never liked the Colombians. So there's a lot of animosity, but they kept them apart. Uh, between nine, uh, 2010 and 2020, approximately maybe 70,000 people, 10 years, 70,000 people crossed through the Darien. The Darien is a jungle that's recognized by the United Nations. It is a um, one of the most pristine jungles in the world. It has this amazing habitat. The Smithsonian has this huge uh, office that studies this amazing habitat of this. And it is the link between Colombia and Panama and the North American continent. It has also become the pathway for people fleeing oppressive horrible realities. Last year, 248,000 people crossed the Darien. It takes five, uh, it takes an average, we were told, of five days. Teenage boys can do it in three because they just run. They don't care about the heat and the mosquitoes and mud. But the, um, so it's an average of five days. Families traveling usually take eight to 10 days. And last year, 248,000 people crossed the Darien from 70 countries. What's happening is um, people in bad situations are flying to Brazil and coming up, walking up through, because Brazil doesn't have... Um, Visa requirements and then come up through the uh, through the Darien. You have to know walking through the jungle is hot, humid, green so dense you can't see the sky, mud so intense it sucks your shoes off. I can attest to that, um, and the mosquitoes dangerous animals, snakes, and the river is high. People, 248,000 people crossed that last year. This year, in the first five months, 182,000 have crossed. There are more children and families coming. In April, 8,000 people crossed. In May, 8.5 thousand people crossed. And approximately 20% are kids under 12. We saw the, there is part of the river where if you've got money, you can pay to get into a boat, uh, Piraguas, and they come down the river. We saw boats coming down there's a mother who had been in the jungle for seven days carrying an infant with her. 
and had a toddler, and her husband was taking care of the toddler. We saw a family of five, three kids, a mom and dad. And one of the girls said when they were walking along the river in the mud, she she slipped into the river. He, the dad, leaped in after her and barely got out with the girl. But you could see the terror for both of them. Well, actually, all of them. This young girl was just, I mean, just staring. Her family was, you know how with with um, trauma that people are eager to tell the story. They need to tell the story. And we were new people to hear the story. And she couldn't say a word. But it was also obvious that it was the dad's idea to come. And the mother was shooting daggers at him for putting the family in such risk because the cartel in Colombia has figured out that it's more lucrative to sell people these package tours to cross the Darien because it's a park, you know, to cross the Darien in order to get up to get to North America. And she didn't want to come. The mother did not want to come, but the dad did. And so they came. I don't know. I'm an old family law attorney, and it made me really worried about the, the condition of that marriage, how they were going to resolve this, this conflict. But what I was seeing in that was the hope of people in desperate situations. And we describe it in the U.S., in our luxury, in our establishment. Now, I understand not all of you are from the U.S. Thank your lucky stars. But the challenge is for all of us, for the whole world, is how do we in our wealth meet and do more than occasional acts of generosity and respond with solidarity that holds compassion for a world in such pain? We are called to open ourselves to a suffering world. This suffering calls us to hold the woman who shot the Uber driver in El Paso in our hearts as much as we hold the family of the Uber driver or the family in the Darien or our beloved federal policymakers who are making these terrible policies that cause people to sneak in because they are so desperate. It's not about being dangerous. It's about being hungry. It's about trying to find hope. I believe our contemplative practice is desperately needed now more than ever. Thomas Merton's practice led him to his objection to the war in Vietnam. I believe our practices need to lead us, I would say, to the issue of migration in our time. Now, you may have your other favorite piece. Go there. Trust it. You're given an insight. I'm given one insight. You're given another. It doesn't matter which one, but respond. We are desperate for a response that starts from a place of love and inclusion and 
not willing to leave anyone out of our care. That is the challenge of this age. We need contemplative practices to know what part of the body we are and then to act accordingly. Because if we act with our part of the body, we will be in harmony. We will be able to welcome people in. We will not be separate and we will not be divided by the craziness that's going on in our nation and our world. We need to be more public in our practice and more willing to speak of it. It was years before I claimed a contemplative practice out loud. It felt arrogant. It felt presumptuous. It felt scary. But what I finally realized is, unless we talk about it, unless we're bold enough to put it out there, we're not going to be able to be the healing presence that we're called to be now. Our world needs us. And so the challenge is to not be afraid of what we've been given. To not be afraid of insights or moments of clarity or of what a strange struggle it is to do contemplative prayer. I mean, some mornings I have a really, <laughs> I have a really hard time sitting still on my cushion. I've done it for 40 years. You'd think I'd be used to it. But I really do think this time that the timer stopped. And that ever happened to you all? I'm sure I'm right this time. I'm never right. But it's always a sign that whatever I was skittering around is something I need to open up to. Take a deep breath, Simone. Let it in. Oh, hell. And that is what our world is crying to us for, I believe. We need you. We need you to practice. We need you to share the results of your practice. Maybe not in words, but in compassion. Because unless we have a recovery of compassion in this time, I really worry where we're going. So holding your heart, the compassion of the folks traveling tonight through the Darien. They had big rains two days ago. And that means the river's high and it's easy for people to be swept away. Everyone we talked to had seen at least one body on their trip through the jungle. This is desperate work they're doing. Holding your hearts, those folks that are trying so hard to find a better life for their families. And holding your heart, those people in D.C. who are making it more difficult. Because we fear there may not be enough to go around. There's always enough to go around if we share. It's as simple as that. But sharing can be tough. So to close this part, I want to close with a po one of my poems. And it's called Living Waters. It's uh, It wasn't live, uh, written in relationship to the Darien and to the river, but uh, it fits. 
Oh, and then I should say, we'll have questions, comments, discussion, blah, blah. Okay. Living waters. Impetuous me favors the passionate tumult of spring, river, flooding. Sensuous me favors the indolent caress of summer, river, flowing. Reflective me favors the penetrating seep of autumn river trickling. Even aloof shy me favors the chilled reserve of winter river freezing. But all of me resists evaporation. I resist the sucking, pulling, warm air, resting me from known boundaries. I resist drifting unseen to unknown parts. I resist the uncertainty of unformed floating, yearning rather to surround rocks and carve new paths. I resist the ambiguous, foggy drift. But luckily, at times, I am yanked into air there, beholding Earth's anguish, weep, weeping, raining, huddling, perhaps the beginning of an exuberant spring. Thank you very much.